I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I might flap once, but I won't let you flap twice. This is Flap Culture. Welcome to Flop Culture, the very first episode where we talk about our favourite flops, bops, celebrity culture, everything in between. I am absolutely terrified. Nobody can see me. You obviously can hear me. I am profusely sweating. I'm so excited to be back, but obviously very nervous because it's very new. Um, Doing it on your own, very stressful, very fun, but I am very genuinely delighted to be back. This is and has been, and will continue to be, a very fun project. I'm very happy to have you on board with me on this journey. I hope you enjoy. I don't think every episode is going to be for everyone, but they're the podcast that I kind of like. And also, you might see a title and you're like, I'm not interested in that. And then you listen and you'll find out you actually are. Because what is a flop at the end of the day? Flop was kind of more originally associated, you know, with box office failures, I think, back in the day. It actually dates back to the 1800s, the late 1800s, uh, when it was first used to mean a failure, which is insane to me. But now it's kind of taken on this entirely new definition, which my first guest on this episode actually gets into really well, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But, you know, like, we have a lot of love for flops. It's not all about commercial success anymore. It's not all about critical success we have our flops that really aren't flops at all because they do well commercially. Um, we just love them. Maybe they don't do as well as we think they should and that's why they're flops. And we say it as a term of affection. And that's one thing I really want to make clear. I'm so up for a constructive little chat, a healthy debate, if you will. But flop is not a value judgment. As Talisa, the female boss, says, it's just fun. This podcast, it's just fun. Um, and I'm saying that now because I feel like this week's pick, it's going it's to divide people. It's going to divide people. But as I said, 
my guest is incredibly capable at justifying their choice and is an incredible guest. And I cannot wait to have them back. But before we get into this week's flop, let's take a look at the news, shall we? <sighs> what a week it's been. What a week and a half it's been. Quite selfish of the celebrities and, you know, everything else to implode the week I said I was going to, you know, rejoin the podcasting universe. Incredibly selfish. But anyway, there's a couple of things that I was debating about getting into the don't worry darling thing. I think we'll come back to it when there's a new update on that because I just feel like, I mean, that's a flap in itself now really, isn't it? But anyway, let's revisit it. Maybe we'll do a field trip to the cinema to watch it all together and to see Harry do his... If you uh, get this opportunity, do that accent. Mine was kind of better, I think. Hire me, Olivia Wilde. Um, uh, she probably doesn't want to get me though, so. Ox. Anyway, we're not talking about, don't worry, darling. We are going to start off with uh, another titan of podcasting returning after a mere two episodes, an episode and a half, a trailer and a holiday special, Meghan Markle. Meghan Markle is back with the podcast. She's actually two episodes in now at this point. Uh, her first episode with uh, the incredible Serena Williams, a friend of hers. Uh, and the most recent episode, Mariah Carey. Mimi, she's here. She's ready to chat. Um, the whole concept of Meghan's podcast is around archetypes. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce that. You know, like how we perceive different types of women, predominantly female identifying people. Um, and obviously she gets into the whole idea of being a diva with Mimi. And it's a very funny conversation because, you know, like I love getting to hear an extended chat with Mariah. It's not something we get. It's something we shouldn't take for granted. Um, but also it's, Mariah's funny, you know what I mean? And she throws, she has her little, well, depending on what, what you read, people are reading into it as a dig. I don't think it's a dig. It was just her being like playful, fun, whatever. And also telling the truth because at one point, you know, they're talking about, I think Megan's talking about not really relating to uh, the, like being a diva or whatever. They're talking about Mariah's diva reputation. And she's talking about how like it's a persona. I think that's really important for people to remember that there might be this persona. And yes, this diva thing we can play into. I mean, it's not something I connect to, but for you, it's been a huge part of your... And then Mariah's like, I'm going to stop you right there, Megan. I'm going to stop you. I'm just going to... Let's just... I'm going to stop you right there, Miss Former Princess. And she said, you give us diva moments sometimes, Megan. And then Megan's like, I do, I do not, excuse me. Uh, what kind of diva moments do I give you? Um, which I mean, hilarious, hilarious, given that this is coming from, let's say again, a former duchess uh, on a Spotify exclusive podcast currently living in a $14 million home. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And someone actually wrote this, someone wrote this better than I would, Kevin Fallon for the Daily Beast. He kind of went into, you know, like I think Megan, it's good that she did this podcast and like interrogated the meaning of diva because I think she still has really negative connotations surrounding the word. And Mariah is the perfect example of someone who kind of took that negativity and like spun it into, you know, this comedic persona that she also has and kind of, being in on the laugh as well, but I still don't think there's a disconnect there for Megan. But anyway, Kevin Fallon of the Daily Beast wrote about it and, you know, about the fact that, like, why didn't she get it? Because, you know, it's Markle's narrative is that of the diva. And in all the positive ways that she and Carrie had just spent 45 minutes explaining, 
She claims her power. She is a disruptor. She is often marginalised, refuses to settle, has a legion of fans who fall over her every move. It's not diva behaviour in the way of Miss Piggy, but in the modern sense that the podcast is celebrating. She was a little-known TV actress who married a prince. Then she convinced him that royal life wasn't best suited for them, breaking centuries of tradition and sparking a veritable international crisis. She's a diva. Fighting with Piers Morgan, diva behaviour, but in, like, the best way. I don't, like fall too heavily on either side of like liking or loathing Megan I suppose or the, like and I think it's like really hard to have a conversation around this with it and I know it's different for them now because they've left but I feel like if you try to have any kind of <sighs> intense conversation around it it's like you're a Brit licker she's a Brit licker but I just there's something very fascinating about it because they've left because she was literally Rachel on Suits she was a celebrity. She ran a lifestyle blog, became famous, has left, and we're still dealing with the repercussions of that. That's endlessly fascinating if you're interested in celebrity and pop culture at large. Um, so you don't have to be like a big up the royals. Why would you be anyway? What a demented family. Anyway, and all, but also then, like, whose side are you going to be on? Meghan versus the Queen? Who's picking the Queen? Who is picking the Queen? Who is a stan of the Queen? I don't even want to know. Anyway, this has gone totally deranged. Uh, Megan has also done a profile for The Cut, which is a very interesting read. I will leave all of these in the show notes for anyone who wants to dig into them themselves. Um, quite interesting. I'm still kind of on the wiser as to who she is, which I suppose is the point for her. Um, do you know what I did find interesting? She's teased her return to Instagram. She did immediately retract it, but initially she was like to the reporter, she was like, hey, come here. Come here, I got a secret. She's like this with her finger like, hey, I'm going to tell you something. I'm coming back to Instagram. I might come back to Instagram. And let me tell you, fair play, because you know what we need more of? Sketch comedians. Killian Sunderman, you should be shaking. Watch your back. Watch your back. Um, elsewhere, we're getting a new Taylor Swift album, her 10th, Midnight's. She announced it at this year's VMAs. After winning for Best Long Form Video for All Too Well, 10-minute version, Taylor's version, 1873, whatever the hell, add as many brackets as you want. That's the title of the song. Comes out October 21st. She's described the new album as a collection of music written in the middle of the night, a journey through terrors and sweet dreams, which is giving me very Leaving Search English. It's giving me um, comparative. It's giving... you know, There's a, a whole longer description that I was going to read for this podcast. I'm just not going to do it. You can find it yourself on Google and maybe just cringe. Maybe just cringe a little bit. And I say that, I say that as a Swifty. I say that as someone who has covered an album of hers for this podcast later on in the series. Tease, hint, there you go. Stay tuned for that. Um, I love her. I love her music. I really do. She's another celebrity that I just find endlessly fascinating. How could you not? But there is like... <sighs> It's hard work, you know what I mean? Like even these theories around this album now, because obviously this is her first original release since Evermore. She's released albums since, but they've been re-recordings of her past albums. I'm not getting into the label thing now. Their podcasts, essays, articles go into it. She's re-recording all her old albums because of a past legal dispute. I think people thought that... Uh, uh, the next Taylor's version was going to be 1989 because there were singles off it. You know, you had Wildest Dreams. Uh, this Love actually was released alongside the Summer I Turned Pretty. So people are like, it's going to be 1989, it's going to be 1989. Um, but no, this is all new music, which is very exciting. But like, exhausting work. Like, 
she needs to be lobotomized and investigated for science, as does every Swifty on the planet, because, like, she is one of these people, she breadcrumbs everything, nothing is an accident, she is as calculated as the Kardashians, which is why I think they all hate each other, that's another podcast for another day. Uh, she's a meticulous planner, and if you're a Swifty, you're constantly looking out for these things and these signs, and you're like, what's going on? What is she talking about? Like, who who could this be? And it's like, there's a gem on her leg, and, you know, she did this on the 13th, and that was to commemorate the 13 goals of Scooby-Doo. Like, it's just... Endless, 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 right? But this theory, I do think, is interesting and probably the most believable, because I've seen other things on TikTok, you know, where it's like, oh, I think this is going to be her last album, because... There's some references to the fact that I suppose Lover ends on daylight and it kind of goes into this. And I think she'd hinted before there being like a blue equivalent to Lover and this seems to be in a more blue colour scheme. But anyway, I'm not just one TikTok isn't a primary source. That's all I'll say. I'm a history teacher now. I'm delighted. Um, basically, one fan has found if you go on to the Spotify, I think it is. Uh, there's something. Oh, yes. One fan and it's at Laws of Nature, but it's spelled like Nature if that makes sense, they, on some social media platform, they noticed that on the Spotify, there's like a countdown clock ticking to midnight for Taylor Swift's music on Spotify. And the clock, all the numbers have different, they're, they're different colours basically. And she reckons that each colour, sorry, I'm assuming it's a she, I'm actually not sure. So I'm going to take that back. But they reckon each colour represents an era, Taylor Swift era. So like some of the numbers are green for a debut album, blue is for 1989, red is for red, yellow for fearless, yada, yada, yada. So they reckon that Midnight's, because they said it's taken over the course of her life, so they reckon that each song is taken from kind of a certain era from those albums and those points in her life. I'm so tired even just thinking, thinking about that. I We could solve the climate crisis if all, if Taylor Swift and her fans came together and just used their enormous noggins, just rubbed them together and created some kind of friction. Something could happen. But alas, Taylor loves getting planes everywhere. So that's not going to happen, unfortunately. And then finally, sad breakup news. Leonardo DiCaprio and Camilla Morone, Marone, whatever, they have broken up. Um, because Leonardo DiCaprio is only interested in you if your frontal lobe isn't fully formed. Of course. Um, she is the latest girlfriend to kind of reinforce this pattern that he seems to have of only dating women up until they're 25. And then after that, he's like, Ugh, uh, absolutely not. Too old for me, I'm afraid. He, uh, he'd he be watching The X Factor and he'd be voting. He'd be actively, he'd be trying to vote against the over 25s. He was like, Ollie Murners, just getting sick. Um, they'd been together for five years when she was 20. That's interesting. He's 47 now. You do the maths there. Um, it's been said that over the summer the actor and model grew apart, but fans have speculated that their breakup comes after the model turned 25. Leonardo has famously never dated anyone publicly over the age of 25, so there you go. Uh, it's definitely not a casual relationship, this one they were going out. Camilla spends a lot of time at his house. Thanks, source. Camilla is long known as Leo's girlfriend, and Leo introduced her to both of his parents long ago. Okay, fair enough. Uh, speaking about their 22-year age gap previously, Camilla said, there said, said, there are so many relationships in Hollywood and in the history of the world where people have large age gaps. I just think anyone should be able to date who they want to date. Daily Mail has a very funny headline this week that says, a look back at Leonardo DiCaprio's history of only dating women 25 or under. Previous dating history obviously includes Blake Lively, Barra Fieli, Giselle Bunchen, Bunchen, um, and they all broke up before they were twenty-five. So there you go. I have 
I, I don't I don't fall in that category anymore. I'm 27. He looks at me like a stinking, aging hunk of cheese. Like that lunch that's gone mouldy in the back of your fridge that you meant to take to work and you just keep forgetting and you're like, I can't even face it to throw it out. That's me. If Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio ever made eye contact with me, that's what he would see. Anyway, I think that's more than enough of that. That has been the news this week. Many other things. I want to keep it brief this week because uh, our flap this week and our chat is quite long. So without further ado... Uh, let's intro that. Let's talk about that. Look, I think this is going to be a bit of a divisive topic, right? But when I put it on Instagram, some people did get it right. So I don't think I'm 100% off. And at the end of the day, the guests picked them. So, and it's up to them to justify it. So don't shoot the messenger is what I'll say. But I did want to kick off this episode of Flap Culture, you know, subverting your expectations of what a flap is in 2022. Going back to that thing of, we all have things we perceive as flaps. Are they even flaps anymore? You have something that does really badly and then gains this called following, yada, yada, yada. It's kind of, it's a malleable word at this point. Um, but I knew when this guest chose this person as their flap, I knew they would be extremely capable of justifying and explaining their choice. So for flap culture this week, we're talking about an artist that has been recognised at award ceremonies across the globe, enjoyed a lot of commercial success across this side of the pond in particular, but with peaks come troughs. And despite her influence still being felt in pop music today, she never quite reached the dizzying heights that some of her peers were able to scale. To examine why that is, I have enlisted the help of DJ Louis Fourteenth, host of the Pop Pantheon podcast, to talk about none other than Khalees. And a quick correction up top, when talking about Kaleidoscope at one point, I referred to the single as caught out here instead of caught out there. So correct the record. Let's get into it. <laughs> DJ Louis the Fourteenth, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here on Flop Culture. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here on Flop Culture, and there's no musical artists that I prefer to flops, so I'm so excited to talk about one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get a good plug in at the end, but I just have to say, like myself, I really genuinely mean that I am thrilled and have so much pleasure in having you here because I know some people pay lip service. But when I say you have been keeping me company on all of my hot girl walks, the Pop Pantheon is just the like necessary listening for all pop music fans, pop culture fans, I think broadly. I think everything you bring to the episodes and the guests you pick, it's just, I shared it on my Instagram stories when you did the Christine episode with Evan Ross Katz. And I was just like, if I can do a podcast half as good as this singular episode, I'm winning. I'm winning. <laughs> that is so kind. I really, really appreciate it. And that means everything to me because it's certainly a labor of love. So thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. As I said, labor of love. So it means everything that people are connecting to it. And I agree with you. If you are a pop music fan, I really think you will enjoy this show. It's, it's, it's really a home base for people that are fanatic about pop stars and pop music, I think. On that matter, uh, obviously flop culture is all about, you know, flops and that can be, people can have different interpretations when it comes to that word. So when I reached out to you about doing this and you came back with a couple of ideas, I think you can hit the nail on the head with all of them. I don't want to say who else you picked in case, because I would love to have you back to talk about one in particular, okay. but one name that you put forward and one pop star, because obviously pop stars and pop, that's your bread and butter. So it made mm. sense for you to pick a flop star, if you sure, will. Sure. Um, you came back with Khalees, which I'm so excited that you did because as someone who never really 
I'm going to be honest, like massively engaged with her or her sure. back catalog at all, bar sure. the singles. That's this what makes her a flop. It, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is an illuminating experience for me. But I suppose, why was Khalees the flop that kind of stuck out in your mind when you got that email from me? Well, obviously on my show, the concept of flopping comes up a lot and I feel like it's an idea that's sort of come into full form in the 2010s more so than like the idea of flopping has existed. I mean, I think it's actually a term. I mean, you probably know better than me. This is your show, but it was a term that was used in the cinematic world and film world prior to its common usage in pop. But I always feel like the, the, the sort of calcification of the use of the word flop in the pop music context sort of began with Christina Aguilera's bionic and like has kind of gone on from there. So We always, I just felt like, look, there's a lot of flops that we as pop fans talk about a lot. You know what I mean? Like there's just kind of like the, the list of beloved flop pop stars that are the ones we talk about all the time. So when you brought this up to me, I was like, who can I pick that sort of, that maybe fits the brief, but maybe predates the sort of common usages and sort of the cliche sort of few people that we talk about all the time as flops and pop music. And Khalees has been just a personal favorite of mine. And I think is one of the original sort of alt pop stars that, had the patina of being underrated and that people who have been into her would say about her. Why are more people not into this music? Why are more pop fans not connecting with this incredible pop music? And I think that's what defines a flop is in some ways is the idea that like they're underrated. They're somehow undiscovered. Their music is commercially not as successful as you feel like it should be. So she predates the common usage, but I think is also kind of like a, a a mother to modern flop culture in some ways. Totally, totally. Let's go back in time. We're with 17-year-old Khalees. She's working with a group called The Neptunes. Not sure if anyone's heard of them. (laughs) Um, Working on Kaleidoscope, her first album, considered to be one of her best, uh, recently celebrated 20 years. Um, She got to tour with it a little bit. And then obviously the pesky pandemic ruined things, unfortunately. Um, It's, yeah, didn't it ruin things for all of us? Um, (laughs) But it underperformed in both the UK and the US because it, that's kind of a pattern we'll see of her having this like really opposite reactions in like both continents. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's still considered her breakout and like from listening to it for the first time all the way through myself, I can see like all the ideas are there, something's there, but I think it maybe didn't connect on a commercial level bar the single, call out here obviously. Yes. Why do you think that is? Well, I think Khalees, her music has always been evidently pop music, but I think unlike some other pop flops who are like more mysteriously not successful in a mainstream context, I've got, you know, Carly Rae Jepsen in mind or even Charlie XCX, her music is definitely left of center. And I think on Kaleidoscope especially, I always think of that album as like what Pharrell made in his kind of like most free and expressive version of like what he thought a pop album could be. I mean, if you think about the single caught out there, that does not have a traditional pop chorus. It's her screaming, I hate you so much right now. There is no melody. And there's this sort of dissonant, a classic Neptune's beat with those sort of like dripping synth noises, uh, you know, 
that whole sort of signature Pharrell sound. But that is not like you listen to that song and you go, God, why wasn't this song number one on the charts in every country? Like if that song had been a success, it would have been surprising on that level. I think just, you know, it's not a traditional pop radio hit. So I think Khalees intentionally did not necessarily see herself as whoever was the mainstream pop girl. I mean, I don't think she saw herself like Mariah Carey or Janet even, you know, Janet for all of her idiosyncrasies always made sure that her records came complete with like very radio friendly pop songs, even on her most, you know, uh, experimental music. So it's not a, it's not a huge surprise to me that a record like Kaleidoscope wasn't like a multi-platinum selling success in its time. I think Khalees saw herself, especially in at that particular moment as somewhat avant-garde. And I think the record comes across that way. I kind of think she still thinks like that. I think the story of Khalees is uh, there's a part of me that thinks she doesn't ever really want, she never really wanted to be a pop star. She was always like about the art, mm. saw herself as an artist mm-hmm you know, was very much motivated by vibes and what her what her tempo was like at that particular time. And even when she talked about doing this particular record, they couldn't even believe that they were doing it, that they were given money to basically yeah. go and do a record that she was doing with friends at the time. Um, having come to this, not having never listened to it all the way through before, again, I will go back to, like, you can see she's there. I kind of want to ask you this, though, in terms of the production it's very Neptunes. Like there's a part yes. of me that feels like she's a little bit lost in it. Do you yeah. agree? Well, the thing about that is that this was still very early on in the Neptunes run. So when we look back at this now, that's what we sort of see it as because we've heard umpteen thousand iterations of this aesthetic <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> but at the time, these were still early Neptunes beats and production. So I under I definitely hear what you're saying, and I think this record is as much a playground for Pharrell and a showcase for Pharrell as it is for Khalees. And Khalees was never particularly, even in her work outside of Pharrell, you know, known for being a songwriter. She was often she did so, she did write, but that was never kind of the thing with her. Like she was kind of like a cool kid curator on some level. And I think on in that way, kind of looping back to your previous question, this record was very ahead of its time. I mean, whatever, whoever the influences of it were, obviously Pharrell had a huge hand in shaping the aesthetic of this album. But this sort of fusion of like electronic elements, hip hop and pop into like sort of one sort of genreless soup is something that she built upon in her later work and then also became more de rigueur for pop stars who I think really built on the aesthetic sort of melting pot that she created on this album. I have in mind, not only obviously can you hear the influence of caught out there and many songs on this record on future Neptune's records, like rock your body or I'm a slave for you, et cetera, et cetera. But also that sort of approach to making pop music is evident in like Gwen Stefani's Love Angel Music Baby or, uh, you know, Fergie's mid 2000s album or even Nelly Furtado's Loose. So I, I understand what you're saying. Like, I definitely think that 
Looking back on this, you definitely hear a heavy-handed Pharrell, Neptune's sound on this album. But I think you have to kind of put yourself in the context of when it came out. And at that point, people weren't as familiar with the sound of the Neptunes, and it wasn't as overplayed. And so I think that it felt very singular in the moment that it came out. That's a very fair point. I need to get back into the 1999 mindset when I was four. (laughs) But um, just that is an extremely fair point. It is. It's hard because they're everywhere now. Like you, you go back to like Sweetener. Like it it just felt felt like they were because they they were everywhere in the noughties and kind of into the early teens. Yes. So I suppose that is probably not a fair thing for me to say when I'm listening now. With no, no, no. I think it's a fair point to make because perhaps in retrospect it makes it more obvious what a heavy hand Pharrell had in the creation of this aesthetic. So I don't Mm. think it's an unfair point, but I think it's important to also highlight like how this sounded to people in its moment, because as I said, it was like, you know, it was just at the beginning of the wave of like the Neptunes literally. And you're right. Like, I mean, they completely overtook both hip hop and pop radio in the, you know, next few years after this album came out. So it's a, it's a good point and it's, it's worth picking apart. And obviously she's talked about in retrospect, you know, the sort of Svengali-ish nature of her relationship with Pharrell. And, you know, she actually made moves to sort of bust free of him and has since really, you know, I don't think has spoken highly of her experiences Mm, working with him. I think they have a, they have a pretty contentious relationship at this point, but I do think as much as the record sounds production wise, like a Neptune's thing, I think there is her force of personality and her, just her sort of cool factor is also quite evident on all of these songs as well. And like the sort of unique husk of her voice. Any other favorite tracks for the singles? I loved Game Show and I loved mm-hmm. Roller Rink. I feel like those are the songs that I will revisit the most having interrogated this album properly now. Yes, I love those two, and I would also throw Mafia into the mix. I really love yes. Mafia. Um, yeah, Mafia is good. And, and, you know, not for nothing, just going off of what you just said, it's a very cohesive album, which, you know, mm. speaks, you know, it's, it's an, it is a, it's the kind of record that you can really sit and listen through front to back and feel like you're in a world, in a sonic universe. It's got a very unified perspective, both in terms of, like, the music, what she's saying on the record, how she sounds on the record, and then obviously how the production sounds on it. So the double-edged sword, I guess, of like the, 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 the obvious presence of the Neptunes throughout the entire thing. Cause she, she talked about it a bit later on. I was listening to her. She was not recently, but last year she did an episode of Mark Ronson's podcast, uh, which I'd never listened to before. It's decent. Um, (laughs) And she was kind of going through, you know, they were just obviously shooting the shit because they know each other and have, they haven't worked together like that, but they know each other, obviously, same circles, whatever. Sure. And she was saying about coming through at that time and, you know, having media, like, kind of not know what to do with her. Yes. And then later on to be throwing around terms like black futurism. And she was like, no, those words didn't exist when yeah. I first came out. And now right. they're just like, nobody knew what that was. Nobody knew where to put me because you had all these, like, as cohesive, cohesive as that record is, um, as you said, it's pulling from so many different genres mm-hmm. that curation of different th- different sounds different vibes like right. it's like it's not a full rock record it's not full r&b it's not full no. pop it's not full no dance but it's no. like flavors of everything it's like futuristic it's, funk is sometimes how the neptune sound was con- you know kind of yeah, described yeah, yeah for sure yeah for sure 
did she carry that through with Wonderland? Because Wonderland is a very interesting record and story. It's her second record. Again, pretty beloved by critics if you're to look at a lot of the reviews, but didn't go anywhere in the US because the label were like, the label didn't gel with it. They listened to it and they clearly were like, there's no singles on it. Because in fairness, I don't think there is any singles on it, having listened to it myself. Um, And an even stranger iteration of the first formula, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Was released in the UK, kind of didn't really do much there. Mm -mm. Um, And then the US were like, oh, we we can't put this out here. And it only ended up coming out to streaming, I think, in the States in 2019, correct? Yes, I think that is correct. And I just, just just to go off of your previous point, one thing we talk about on Pop Pantheon often is this sort of lane that developed in the, you know, late aughts into the early 2010s of sort of like alternative pop stardom that was like fostered on the internet. Like we talk about this with artists like Robin, sort of who I also sort of see in the same lane as Khalees and who I also saw once on a co-headlining tour together, which I can return to. Um, they Please do. I will. Uh, they, you know, so the internet created a lane for pop stardom where you aren't a traditional sort of radio friendly, or even if you are radio friendly, for whatever reason, you're not connecting in a mainstream fashion, but you're able to exist as like a cult phenomenon and also make kind of some version of pure pop music, right? So that's Robin, that's Charlie XCX, that's Rina Sawayama, that's Marina and the Diamonds, that's, I mean, the, the list is growing. It's 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 a, now become a huge sort of sub-ecosystem where it's like, you're a pop star essentially in the same vein as Dua Lipa, but you're a cult phenomenon for whatever reason, and you're mm-hmm. not actually like an arena-stomping sort of mainstream radio number one pop star, right? In, in the early... 19, I mean, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, this lane did not exist. You mm-hmm. could not exist in this way. And I think this is where the term flop is interesting in this particular context, because now we don't necessarily... Yes, we, we lovingly refer to Charlie XCX or whatever as a flop, but in reality, we know that she's also like a very successful artist who's like has a great career and is able to... like not ever have a radio hit essentially past, you know, whenever her few smattering of hits was in the early 2010s. I mean, just happily chug along as like a cult phenomenon pop star that's like hugely influential and, you know, successful in her own way. That did not exist in this time period for pop. It existed for rock. There was indie rock bands. There was a whole culture around discovery of things that weren't in the mainstream in record stores whatever that did not exist for a pop artist like Khalees in this time period. So, Mm -hmm. so, so there wasn't really like, there wasn't really a lane for her to exist. And I think that that speaks to Wonderland, like not being released and to sort of the quote unquote underperformance or the lack of reception to this record or to either of these first two records on some level in any country, because if the internet had existed in this time period, I guarantee you both of these albums, despite how strange they were, would have found some sort of audience. Um, As you're saying this, I'm just like, I can invite, if this was to come out now, and like the way people speak about Cleese now, as you said, with like the benefit of time and hindsight and everything else, and like stan culture and 
how we engage with media now. Yeah. Like people would eat it all. Of course, like, I mean, especially pop fans. I think right. She'd be like Tanache, or she'd be like you know yeah. the, the, these. She's like I mean, she certainly has paved the way for artists like Tanache and Kalella and Ari Lennon. I mean, there's all there's a whole ecosystem of sort of like alt R and B slash pop girls that are not rate shopping the charts on the radio, but have like very successful, just slightly left of center sound. So this is what this record is and what, and what kaleidoscope is, but it just came, it, it was, it was ahead of its time and uh, sonically and aesthetically. And I think ahead of its time in terms of like how it exists in the world, if that makes sense. Who do you think created that lane then? Was Khalees partially responsible? Yes, do you think it was I someone else? Yeah, Khalees. I think, I think there were things going on in this time period that helped sort of generate this idea. I mean, we did an episode on Nelly Furtado. I think there's a world in which sort of like Nelly Furtado's like sort of stranger early albums like maybe also fit into this equation slightly. Um, there's the, the, the beginnings of this idea are happening now. But for most of pop music history... You were either Janet, Madonna, superstar, or you were a total failure. Like, there was no middle ground there. Like, you either had to be getting number one hits on the radio, or you were nothing. <laughs> like, there was nowhere for you mm. to go. There was no, like, alt-pop lane that existed where people could discover you. So, so I do think, I think very strongly that Khalees is one of the, like, ground zero points for this movement, for sure. And these records stand in that lineage, and it's nice to see them release Wonderland now. People somehow going back to these records now or citing them as influences now, uh, because I do think she really did help start to sort of create the wedge that allowed this to happen, with these two albums in particular. We briefly touched on the label issues, and this kind of seems to be like a recurring theme in the career of Khalees. Can yes. you give a bit of context and briefly outline them just for anyone who kind of isn't familiar with that aspect of Khalees's career and like what happened there? I, I don't know if I'm like the most like detailed well-versed, but what I, what, from what I generally understand about it is kind of speaking to exactly what we were talking about. The label just essentially like did not know what to do with her because these songs were not becoming radio hits. They didn't know how to work them in a traditional fashion. And so she was at kind of like intense loggerheads with them pretty much consistently through her entire career. I'm, I wish I had more like detailed knowledge of what exactly went on there. Um, but that's kind of my loose understanding. Do you, do you know more than that? I know she had, she talked about it on uh Mark Ronson, where it was like, you know, just hearing that thing of they basically went back to her after it was released in the UK. Yeah. And they said, we need you to re-record it. And she was like, what the actual fuck? I've just poured my entire life into this record. Yes. Like you can't. And she was like, I'm paraphrasing now, obviously, but she was essentially like, look, and you know, people on the outside, they hear that and they're like, that's a pretty divish response or whatever. But she's like, like, it's not when you've worked so hard on a body of work, of it's course. just been released. And then you've all like, you know, the things with labels is like, people can change, people can move on, the people who are vouching for you and rooting for you can, you know, be gone the next right. day. And right. then you have new people in who want to get their new people in. Um, and it just really felt like, she was caught in a revolving door of that because like this isn't, she moved on to another label 
Jive, which yes. she said she never would have signed with. Right. Um, Home and to like Britney said, and the Backstreet Boys and a lot yeah. of huge pop acts at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she said she never would have signed with them if she'd kind of been given the choice. And she reckons that if Jive had been given the choice, they wouldn't have signed her. And then as we go further into career, there's like a thing where she signed to Interscope and Will yeah. I Am's like offshoot. And yeah. like there's kind of a fuck up there. It just, how, how do you think those kind of label fuck ups and like the moving and the whatever and never kind of being settled because obviously this is at a time as well where you're talking about there not being a lane for this type of pop star but it's also like labels are king if you don't have yeah. a label you're screwed how I, much do you think that affected her trajectory as a pop star if at all I mean I I often wonder like how much of her continued ev- whatever even getting record deals or having support from a label had to do with the relationship with Pharrell and just how hot Pharrell was at that time because they were very closely associated. I mean, this is mm. like this is like a producer singer combo that like at this point obviously starting with Tasty she begins to experiment with working with other songwriters and other producers. However, Pharrell was the hottest producer in pop music and in, you know, hip hop and R&B at this moment. So, I believe the deal with Jive was related to his own deal with Jive. I think that he, I I can't remember exactly how this went, but I have a strong intuition and I don't have a feeling to back this up that the reason that Khalees even had the opportunity to record a third album was after, after what went on with Wonderland had to do merely with the fact that Pharrell was her creative partner at this time. And like basically could, could kind of convince anybody to do whatever they wanted. I don't have evidence of that. That is like my status speculation on my part, but I have to imagine given that essentially her first two albums went basically nowhere that if the, the only way she got a major record deal again was due to that, that would be my intuition. I love a pop conspiracy theory, so I'm absolutely willing to entertain it. Don't I worry. Mean, you have to understand if your listeners are too young to, to remember this. Like, I cannot stress to you how big of a deal the Neptunes and Pharrell were at this time. I mean, every single artist, pop, hip hop, R&B, was going to them for a single. They, I think, at one point they had something like 25 of the top 100 songs in America, like around this period. So, like, it was un- almost unlike anything that's ever happened before or since. You mentioned Tasty. 2003 album, mm-hmm. probably the album that most Fairweather fans are familiar with because it's the album that spawned Milkshake, sure. Trick Me, sure. Millionaire. Sure. Uh, launched her kind of into the stratosphere in inverted commas of like, you know, back into that lane of having kind of parallel commercial and still like critical success. Yes. What I think is funny here though is that it actually performed much better in the UK and even here in Ireland than yes. it did in the US. And yes. also, Milkshake actually went to number one in Ireland and yeah. it didn't go to number one in the UK Good or for the US. You guys. We have taste. We have yes, taste. What taste. can we say? Seriously. Why? But why is that though? Do you think? Because obviously, I've no, like, I can't, I can't get in the head of an American audience. And like, is it like, did, did people just think this was a novelty song? Yeah. Was it that? Because like, I, having listened to Tasty all the way through now, this is a good, a mm. fucking good album. Like Incredible. cohesive, yes. just enough polish, mm-hmm. just, just, oh, it's so shiny and good mm-hmm. and like poppy mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. every, I love it. Like I really, really love it. Yes. Yes. It's my personal favorite Khalees album. I think to answer your question, I do think you're onto something with people feeling like Milkshake 
is or was a novelty song. I mean, it has that sheen to it. I mean, mm. the notion of what a milkshake is and all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, it was written for Britney, and who passed oh, on Oh, I it. did not know that. Yes. So this was created in the same sessions that I'm a Slave for You was, which was written for Janet, actually. But I... That was kind of the, and that says a lot about it. I mean, it's her poppiest single. I mean, it's her most obvious radio hit single. It's still slightly edgy. There's like sort of a dissonant synthesizer noise that runs under the entire thing, but it has an incredible kind of schoolyard chant hook that sort of presages Hollaback Girl, which would come the next year, another big Pharrell hit. And it's undeniable. I mean, I think Milkshake is the kind of song that whomever was singing it, it I mean, I think Khalees is a wonderful conduit for this song, but this is one of those Neptune songs that I think was just sort of undeniable, and it showed. It was a huge smash. Why the rest of the record didn't connect? First of all, I don't think there's another song that sounds quite like Milkshake on this record, unlike the first two, which I would say are sonically of a piece for the most part with one another. She worked with numerous producers on this record. Dallas Austin, um, Raphael Sadiq of Tony, Tony Tone. Uh, I'm trying to remember some of the others offhand, but there was, uh, uh, who am I forgetting? There's a bunch. Anyway, she was, she was going to other producers at this time. And so there is a wide range of sounds. I mean, you have Trick Me is almost like a reggae song. You have... Keep It Down, which is like sort of a big guitar-heavy, almost like Beastie Boys-esque rock-rap hybrid. You have In Public, which is kind of like a oh, kind of X-rated duet with her future husband, Nas. You have sort of these like Lisa Lisa, sort of uh, Evelyn, almost like Champagne King, almost nodding, sort of like up-tempo records like Flashback and eight, they're sort of like 80s R&B flashback and, uh, and uh, Protect My Heart. So... Look, no other song sounded like Milkshake. Radio at this particular time in America was very, as I have said a million times, was very dominated by the Neptune sound, but that was representative of the fact that pop was dominated by hip-hop and R&B influences at this time. So I just don't think that there was another record on this that is as obvious of a slam-dunk hit single in the United States as Milkshake was, although this album is loaded with very addictive, fun, as you said, frothy, shiny pop records and everyone should definitely go listen to it (laughs) a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you, if again, if you are like me, an idiot, and have never really fully visited this album, like those first eight tracks, right up to Millionaire, and I do, I like tracks oh, on the latter Andre half as well, but like that. Oh, Andre 3000, I forgot that was who I thought like, that I was thinking of. I mean, it's just like, 
trick me right through to millionaire. It's like, like it, that in public, I just love the kind of like brashness of the lyricism where she's mm-hmm. just like that sexual confidence is like oozing out, but she has oh, like yeah. that really sweet vocal as well. It's yes. just, it really is like pop perfection. Yeah, and, her, and you're right about her sexual frankness. I mean, the thing about Khalees is that she was very not like Britney as a pop figure. She was extremely, she was like the cool girl and her sexuality was very empowered and not that Britney's wasn't that I don't want to don't that's not what I meant but like it's it, it, it there was something um like she was the cool person's pop star like mm-hmm. and I think that that's really important to highlight and I think that that you know is partially why she wasn't necessarily like the most broadly appealing she was meant for someone who was who fancy themselves a little bit outside of mainstream pop. And her music did speak to that, I think, even on a record like Tasty that is more pop-oriented than perhaps the first two are. There's always something about her that feels... Like, especially out of step with the pop girls of this particular moment. I mean, if you're thinking about the sort of just, like, glossy sheen of... Britney, of Jennifer Lopez, of Beyonce, you know, she was rougher around the edges than that in a proud way. And I think that that's what makes her intriguing and also probably what like maybe limited her success on pop radio at this particular time. She was also kind of like a little bit combative in her imagery purposefully. She was a little bit like, she had a little bit of a middle finger in the air vibe before like Rihanna made that palatable for people. So like, at this particular time, the pop stars that were really successful were like the cheerleaders. They were like kind of like the most sort of down the middle, like appealing showgirls that were like willing to like be perfect on some level. If you think about Britney, Beyonce, and Jennifer Lopez as great examples of like the most beautiful girl in the class who's going to like hit all her marks perfectly. Like Khalees never really was that. She wasn't a dancer. She was a little bit of like, she was a little punky almost in her Mm. energy, if that makes sense. For sure. And I think that descriptor of, you know, the people who liked her were the people who would pro- who turn their nose up probably at Britney and be like, my music, I, I like the underground music. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, but, and I'd say they're even, if they've come across this episode now, they're like, well, I always knew Glace was good. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she, I mean, it speaks to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, which is just that she... I'm interested by the fact that she was so sort of perplexed at her lack of mainstream success, given the way that she presented herself, I guess, because as I said, she was the cool girls pop star. That was her thing. So it, I'm I'm not like, I'm not particularly like shocked that this music wasn't like topping the charts, but I am happy as you pointed out that it did well with did better with you guys like because i think also like you know the the united kingdom generally speaking has a more wide-ranging palette for pop songs and for like various novelty hits and for you know you guys are willing to elevate things that i think we have a sort of tighter window of like what we'll get into as a body politic i guess it's funny that Britney has come up quite a good bit on this episode because Khalees obviously went on to support her on 
you're going to correct me on the name of the store. Is it Onyx? Onyx Room? Onyx Hotel. Onyx Hotel. Onyx Hotel. Yeah. It was Onyx Room. Fuck's sake. Sorry, Britney fans. Um, <laughs> I'm too young. I was in the womb, probably. Um, she, Britney did the RDS here in Dublin and Khalees supported there. And then, so the capacity of the RDS is like 18,500. Right. I read back some reviews at the time and they were really, yeah. really good. And she went on and actually booked her own day that like kind of one of our biggest indoor venues here to be the three arena it was the point at the time and that's like 15,000 that ended up being cancelled because of like scheduling things but again in my research like it just it goes to show how like she was kind of put into several boxes because as well as like touring with Britney you know she had this agent in the UK I think his name was John Giddings and at the time he was representing people like Madonna the Rolling Stones the U2, uh, the U2, fuck's sake, and I'm Irish. <laughs> U2, the U2, Jesus Christ. Oh my God, they're U2. definitely going to crucify you now. No, f- fully, like, Bono <laughs> is going to be so mad at me. Bowie, like, but she was, like, that, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and she was talking on a podcast about how, you know, she was going out to support, like, these rock bands. She was coming out, like, this black girl to a predominant, predominantly, like, white audience. They were like, who the fuck is this? Right. They were pelting her with, like, glass bottles. Right. Like, they just did, like, at one show, she just moons them all. She was like, fuck yeah. y'all, I'm yeah. sick of this. Right. And I think she was, she was talking about this story about how, like, she was kind of really getting down about it and whatever. And the edge was like, fuck it, who cares? Like, just go out. And he was like, my daughters love you. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's right. just... It's crazy that she was, well, it's crazy and it's not because like you can hear the rock influences. The year she played Glastonbury around this time as well, like she's covering Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like there's rock influences in this, Mm -hmm. but it's so funny because I think, again, if you were to ask some person in the street, hey, who do you think Khaleesi supported before? I don't think any of those people would be on this. I don't even think Britney would be on that list because again, they're so opposing. I agree. I I think that's a really good point. She she felt more like a rock star than she did like a pop star. And it just speaks to like, she, it you know, this was also a very sort of like, d- d- like it, we live in a time period now where like, we're less concerned with genre, but I think there was a bit of a struggle of like, where do we put this girl? Like she didn't, perform and operate like Beyonce and Jennifer Lopez and Britney. Like that was not her vibe. She was like kind of punk rock, but yet her music was like, I guess more in conversation with like a Britney or a, but also not. I mean, all, I mean it, it's, it, or with like an Aaliyah even, I mean, it's a little bit like it was hard to know where to put her at that time. And now we sort of like celebrate that in our artists. But I think at that particular moment, as I said, it was like pre-internet, like this shit was just more, difficult and more sort of like divided and hard to parse out in this way. So I think that that's a really good point. Like she was kind of hard to classify and that created problems for her and problems for the label in terms of like how to promote her. Yeah, that that was definitely a time when it was like, the audiences I think were not everyone obviously, but I think they were like, you need to tell us exactly who you are. Otherwise we cannot, we cannot compute what you are, what you're selling to us, what this music is. Like, you need to tell us, put it in a nice box, put a bow on it, and then we can understand it. Exactly. Uh, um, I thought this was an insane comparison, and I want to put it to you. So a Guardian review of Tasty at the time, and I think I know the reason why they did this, but it's still fucking, it kind of makes me mad. At the time, they described Khalees as a parallel universe of Beyonce. Uh Discuss, lol. I mean... 
I don't know about that. I, I, I mean... That's just lazy, like, because... Okay, t- think the year, right? Because I was like, where the fuck are they pulling this from? It's yeah. 2003. Beyonce's yeah. just released Dangerously in Love. Yes. They're just like, I'm going to presume this fucking reviewer was white as well. Yes. And it's just like, I have no other points of reference to compare. Right. So, right. you know what? She's like Beyonce, but weird. Like, that's... Im- when I read that, I was like, that's a, f- that's a really fucking lazy comparison. Well, it speaks to everything we've been talking about right now, which is like, there just weren't... There wasn't a lane for artists like this. Like, there is now like police would have a police would have a place in our current discourse that she just doesn't have and i'm instantly reminded of the infamous review of dangerously in love in which some idiot said something like beyonce she's no ashanti or i don't know something along those lines <laughs> so, how that has aged <laughs> yes i mean so a lot i mean and also like look the on my show, I'm constantly going back to like reviews of your and I mean critical discourse around women in especially black women in the pop space during this time period is truly like you just you're you're the mind boggles at what these largely white men were saying about black women and and in this time period and getting away with and about everyone and about women in general. I mean, just sort of very condescending and 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 I mean. I don't know. I, I I don't think about Khalees and Beyonce as like ne- really in the same lane. I Not honestly, I see, I could, I see like Beyonce in a lineage of like Janet and Aaliyah. Mm. And I can see the conversation between some sounds on Khalees's records and like Britney, obviously we've talked about, I mean, I could, I could, I think like, you know, you could see a world where like Christine Aguilar is dirty is somewhat in conversation with like some of Khalees' sounds, like a little bit of that abrasive sort of hip, super hip hop forward pop music. Like there's other pop stars that I can sort of think of, but Khalees was very much like her own thing. Like she really was like, she was like just her own vibe. And I think that obviously both record labels and the critics of the time period had a very difficult time dealing with that in their minds. I have a very specific memory of Khalees was here, her next album from 2006, if you'll indulge me, right? So I was on a family holiday. So this is 2006. I think we were in Portugal. Mm -hmm. um, And these kind of holidays were always very exciting to me because we were usually like in a hotel or whatever. And that would mean I would have access to the music channels because... Uh, whatever TV subscription service we had. We did not have MTV, anything, whatever. And I always found it so interesting, especially when you're in a different country, to be like, what's going on in MTV in Portugal, you know what I mean? Yeah. And this was, don't ask me why this was in my head. I was a freak child, but anyway. um, And I remember uh, watching MTV and the video for Bossy came on. And I just, the video is imprinted in my, of like, the writing the lipstick on the mirror yeah. and like Khalees had like a shorter hair and it like uh-huh. the real like talky chorus. It yeah. was just, and revisiting this album, because again, I never did it in full. Like I really liked the singles and again, the singles did like really well, This Side of the World. Yes. Um, this album fucking slaps. It's, <laughs> I really, really like this. What do you think of Khalees Was Here? I think this was her most obvious sort of attempt at sort of being a mainstream pop Girl, like, I think I prefer Tasty personally. Uh, okay. I think there's definitely some great Khalees classics on here that, like, again, this is where, like, her music feels, like, most in conversation with, like, other stuff that's going on at the moment. I mean, Bossy was a big hit here as well. And I think 
has only grown in stature over time. Like perhaps it's chart numbers don't like necessarily add up to the fact that like, you know, I'm a DJ so I can sort of see what, how like culture has absorbed these records over a long period of time. I mean, bossy is a very memorable song that anybody that was like around for this remember. Um, I think this was the record where she fully proved that she was who she was without needing Pharrell, because this is the first Pharrell less Khalees album. I think there's a lot of really great songs. Like I always loved Aw Shit. And I also always loved oh, Blindfold. So, so Blindfold Me is produced by Polo the Dawn, who the next year, I think it was the next year, went on, or maybe the same year, whatever it was, these were all songs in conversation with like, you know, Fergie's London Bridge, or, you know, there was, this record had more going for it and definitely felt like it was more overtly aimed at, like, finally crossing Khalees over into the mainstream. And I think it did on some level. I mean, as I said, Bossy was, like, a big hit, and as you said, there was numerous hits from this album, but, Like, Little Star went to, like... I don't have the exact number, but it cracked the top five in the wow. UK, which is, I don't actually know if it charted here in Ireland, but um, it's still CeeLo Green, whatever aside. I don't have any particularly strong, positive feelings about him now. Right, but that sure. song at the time, I was like, this chorus is so, and she's like that low register, like m- matched with him. And like, it was such like a curveball from bossy, yes. but it yes. was just so poppy and just, oh, it's, it's so, but it's, it's so good. And as you mentioned, oh shit there, blindfold me. Yes. Uh, and there's also, there's also an er, uh, sort of semi-early period Max Martin and Dr. Luke song on here called I Don't Think So. Um, which is... Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, there you go. And she has writing credits on almost every song on this record. So, I mean, you know, I think this was like a... a, a it's not my personal favorite. You know, also the the producer of Bossy Bangladesh went on then like I think either 2 years later or the next year produced the hit A Millie by Lil Wayne and then the next year sort of flipped that into Diva by Beyoncé and I think you can sort of place all of those songs on a timeline as well. Like there was a certain and also like cockiness by Rihanna. There's like a sort of through line of Bangladesh songs that begin with Bossy here. So she was also always like a really fun playground because she was sort of like kind of art school punk and into sort of like trying to push things outside of the box in a pop context. I feel like a lot of times, like you look at this producer track list, you've got Will I Am, you've got, as I said, Max Martin and Dr. Luke, you've got Missy, uh, you've got uh, 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 CeeLo Green. You know, these are producers that like make tamer productions maybe for more generic pop stars, but they had fun getting to give her more eccentric idiosyncratic material. So that that's one of the highlights of this album to me is like listening to a producer like Will I Am or producers like Dr. Luke and Max Martin like try their weirdest on her. You know what I mean? And that's always like a fun a fun thing thi- venue for like a specific pop star. The one point I will make is and I think you are right. I think so I prefer the songs on this, but I think Tasty is I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, I think it's more kind of streamlined, if that makes sense. There's a lot of, like, a lot of the songs on Cleese was here. I think they go for, like, a chorus too long where I'm like, you didn't, you could have just, you could have just tightened it up a little bit there. And And it's also, like, like, 17 songs long, which, like, I never, that's, it's a lot of songs. I think Tasty's also a little bit more personal and, like, homespun. Whereas this, this to me feels like really, 
a record where like there was definitely like an angle where I I wonder what kind of label pressure she was on to like you know try to sort of mainstream what she was doing. I think this album of all of her records to me feels the most smacking of that and I don't mean that like in a negative way. I think it's a very good album. And again, like all these records like for anybody that's into you know, all of the people that we've been talking about so far on the episode, like you will really enjoy these albums. Like I'm very, very certain of that. <laughs> like they're, they're extremely fun, creative pop collages. So then we go Scott on to Storch. Tone. Scott Storch. Sorry. Got to add him in the mix. Scott. Also <laughs> Scott Storch. If you're listening, yes, we love you. Exactly. Um, Flesh Tone is next. So I suppose, again, just for context for people and kind of going back to those label issues. So the reason why Khalees ended up going with Jive, she left Jive immediately after Khalees was here because, again, they weren't kind of happy with commercially how it did. Yes. Um, she was signed to Star Trek then, which was, or sorry, prior to Jive, she'd been signed to Star Trek, which is right. Pharrell's record label. Sure. Um, then it was bought up, basically. So she was moved to Jive. Yes. She had no control in that, whatever. Right. Um, she was like allergic to this whatever and then after leaving Jive she was like well they dropped her after Khalees was here yeah, yeah. she was like dying, well she kind of said on the Mark Ronson thing she was like I was dying to be released whatever then she was in this time she went to culinary school I'm correct in that yes yes exactly I th- yeah I think she was like she came out of this and she was like I'm so sick of this industry mm-hmm. everything else and was just kind of I think burnt out by the whole experience went away went to culinary school did her bits had a baby um, and at this point in time, obviously you're talking pre- prior to this, she was working with Will I Am. Aunt Cleese was here, and so she signed to his uh or he she signed to Interscope through his music group yes. and started working on this next album, which yes. became Flesh Tone, which is yes. like another massive, massive sonic shift. Yes. And this was her biggest sonic like, shift, I think. This is this is just she played I'll talk about this in a second about the intel that I've gotten from the time that she Ooh. played here. But yeah. Flesh Tone is just, this was a treat to revisit as well, especially with the way the weather has been. This is just, if this was to come out now, I think this would, I don't think this has aged. I don't think any of the albums have aged badly necessarily. Maybe a few songs because of personal right. situations or whatever. But right. in terms of like how they sound, I don't think any of the albums have aged badly. But this one in particular is just like, if this was to come out now, I'd be like, this is, this totally fits the landscape. For sure. I mean, this was her, this came out in the sort of EDM boom of the early 2010s and she shifted fully out of sort of hip hop, R&B and soul and into, you know, up-tempo dance music. I mean, I guess you could say that like this record pays homage to kind of like soul house of the early nineties on some level, like for sure. But, but, uh, yeah, this is like a full-blown dance record that's mixed like a DJ set. I mean, every song is kind of in the style of Confessions on a Dance Floor is like m- mixed into one another. It flows like a like a sort of DJ set, which is really fun. And she does work very well as like a soul house diva, which I guess speaks to the flexibility of her ability to work within genre confines at the same time as she sort of like is genreless. Like this is her most genre forward album. This is her most, this is her album where it's obvious that she like picked a specific lane and then just did that lane, like through the entire thing. Um, if the Neptune sounds of her early albums are like known for their sort of genre mashups and then records like, uh, tasty and bossy and, uh, sorry. And Khalees was here are sort of, genre like her sort of experimenting through lots of different genres this was like a very 
obvious homage to a specific sound and it's very good. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a shift that somehow she pulls off successfully on an artistic front. And I think that some of these songs were hits in the UK. Am I wrong about that? Yes, she had they that, were. She had that big hit with Calvin Harris bounce around this time. Yeah. And then you're talking like as well, some of the other features she did, like Benny Benassi, like Spaceship yes, is right. like that. Oh, she just sounds well, and also, like And also unlike a lot of like divas that were sort of hopping on the EDM train here and like it was kind of weird. Like she really works in this format. Oh, I like even I was driving around earlier and like just getting to spend some time with Brave. Brave is yes, like Brave is one of my such favorites, a good song. Too. Yes, so so good, mm-hmm. so good. Yet another um, instance where like a Will I Am song, like sometimes he sneaks in and makes good records, especially when like people don't let him rap on them. It's yeah, just just don't let him talk, and yes. then it's like we can <laughs> get good shit out of him. Like it's yeah. just don't let him near their mic, please. Yes, uh, exactly. That is often crazy. a bad idea. <laughs> um. So around this time, she was booked to play one of the main uh, LGBTQ plus venues in Dublin, mm-hmm. uh, the George. I'm not entirely sure the capacity of it, but I'm friends with the person who was tasked with organizing it. And they had kind of, this was booked, I think, even pre her releasing acapella and it becoming like such a success right. in the UK and Ireland. So I think right. in Ireland, acapella only actually peaked at 17. Right. And then the UK, I think it cracked the top five, whatever. Yes. Um, and this I was, was David, that, I just, I messaged, a David Guetta song that, and this was yes. David Guetta's like high, you know, high watermark period yeah. of success. Yeah. Kelly Rowland was everywhere. Sure, she was yes, yes. inescapable. Yeah, acapella was like in conversation with like a song like Commander or, or When Love Takes Over, et cetera. Commander, Commander is better than Love Takes Over. Agree mm-hmm. or disagree? Mm-hmm. I, I Hot take. I, I, I'm here. Like, I'm just gonna say it. I'm gonna leave that there. Actually, okay. everyone right. digest that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I, I contacted my friend about you know what it was like at the time organizing that gig and like for a bit of context because I had I have another friend who I work with in TV yeah. and he had tickets for the gig. But it was the it was the night before, so we do a big like exam that basically determines us to get into college, right? The right. leaving cert, right? So right. he had his he had like religious education exam right. the next day, right? And he he was like really paro- paranoid about going because like yeah. exams, whatever. And his mom was like, "No, no, no! I think you should go. I think like whatever, like it's fine. I don't care." And then he didn't go, and he was he was like he's still raging about it to this day. But anyway, my other friend was talking about you know uh, putting on the gig and like the reaction. They had like a fully sold out crowd. Said she had like the longest rider of ever, and obviously they book a lot of acts for like Uh-oh. pride and gigs right. and stuff. Right. Said it was like black towels, champagne, oh oh fresh God. ginger, every oh vitamin you could think of. Oh God! Um, said she was just said there was something she had like a handbag with her and she had her PA like carrying the handbag at all times even when she was on stage and at yeah. one point she couldn't see the PA with the handbag so like she came off stage and like kind of paused the gig to like find the handbag and like be rooting through it yes. she was like I have no idea what was in the handbag but like must have been very important sure anyway finished the gig killed it everyone was really really happy was just like off the stage out the door took two of the black towels a oh bottle God. of champagne nothing oh else and said nothing and oh like the, my friend wasn't saying this in a disparaging way she was just like it was the strangest kind of most admirable like diva <laughs> I hate using the word diva but you know what I mean they were just like I'm kind of obsessed with this like yeah, it's just yeah, yeah. what the fuck did I just witness like yeah I mean what 
Yeah. What co-headlining tour did you say you saw her on? I saw her in this era with her and Robin, and they were touring America, and it was a really interesting combination, I would say. And it, I think that speaks to kind of what I was getting at earlier in the conversation, which is that like Robin, by this point, this was the, you know the beginning of the Body Talk EP rollout, uh, had started to really like craft this cult persona around her music in America. So none of none of Robin's songs in this period were charting hits here. I mean, they were they were essentially the progeny of like blogs and music critics and if you were sort of like involved in online pop music discourse, you were like getting into Robin songs, but no, Dancing on My Own didn't chart here, you know, Call Your Girlfriend, they, these songs did not chart in America, which is truly a travesty. But I was going to say a tragedy, a, a tra- tragedy, a tragedy for us. But I mean, America is tragic in every way. Basically. So, so you said it, not me. You yeah, said it. I, it's fine. I'll say it till the cows come home. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I just thought that that was just an interesting sort of bookend to our conversation at the early part of this, which was like Robin really had started to establish without that. Like I remember that. The next year, maybe 2011 or 2012, after I saw them in their co-headlining tour, Robin was headlining uh, Radio City Music Hall in New York City, which which is like a you know eight or nine thousand seat venue, with absolutely no songs on the radio and with like having sold almost no records here. So it speaks to the fact that like this lane had started to open up, and Kalise and her being on tour together just felt poetic to me because I think in a way this like Kalise was just before her time on some level. Like there's a world in which Kalise could have had this, a similar level of sort of cult success online and be headlining radio city. But it was like her period of uh, her main period of releasing albums sort of just predated that. So that was sort of the, the, the reason I wanted to bring that co-headlining tour up. That's my multiverse of madness, wherever <laughs> Khalees is being, being as successful so you, as Robin do, is now. Do, do you have a sense of, like, how she was viewed over there? I mean, I obviously don't have a first-hand ability to know. Like, was she was she seen as a flop in the UK, despite her sort of sporadic hits, or was she actually seen as, like, a legit pop star? I mean, like, I think she was seen as... I th- I think the the kind of gear shift with flesh tone was like really significant because it felt like she was like inescapable again. And I think people were looking at this, looking at her as like, what a chameleon. This was the person that did, you know, milkshake, the kind of song that we think like, it's a bit silly, but like if it's on, I'm going to be on the floor. I'm probably going to ask a DJ to play it for some reason. Yes. Um, She was, it was very inescapable, but to be honest, I think that was like as much of David Guetta's, influence and obviously I think she brings so much to the song like her vocal is just like yes. incredible I think it's so the fact that it's about her son and like the softness of that like yes. lyricism with this like really kind of industrial yes sonicness that we hadn't heard from her before sure um I think it was really interesting but then it was just I I think and I don't want to say this because I think it was absolutely the right move for her at a point, you know, where she was like really dejected yeah. with her career and right. to hear her talk about food now and cooking, like it, that's clearly like her other love right. in a way that, that it might've surpassed music. Right. There's a part of me that thinks coupled with, you know, people kind of viewing Milkshake as like a novelty song, her sure. doing the culinary school thing. Yeah. I think people kind of nearly associate that more with her now and the fact that she's gone and she lives on a farm and she lives this life. And it's (laughs) like the life she wants to live, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like now, I think for the majority, she doesn't even register as 
that artist anymore, which is kind of really sad. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense also, like, as I said earlier, that, like, she had more hits over there, especially when you think about Fleshtone, because you guys just, like, genuinely love dance music more than American general public tends to. I mean, we had our moment in this moment, too, where we were, like, every song was, like, 125 beats per minute, et cetera. But, like, it makes sense to me that this album, like, was a bigger mainstream success in in the UK. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that she's, she's always seemed, if anything to people like a one hit wonder or like a flop in the context of your, of your podcast. Like, I just think that, uh, I think people do see her as like, at least from my perspective, if you're not in the know about her as like a one hit wonder who made milkshake and maybe like also bossy. And then, um, is kind of like a weirdo who like lives on a farm now and like cooks and like people don't really like that's I think in America at least that's how if anybody thinks of her that's how they usually seem to think about her and this mm. which is why I'm so happy to shine a light on like truly like she's never really made a bad record like they're all so worth returning to yeah yeah for sure mm-hmm. which brings us nicely to food her 2014 yes. record and sure. um, this went the to number twenty of her two passions I guess. Yes, uh, went to number 20 in the UK and hit, peaked at 73 in the US. Yeah. Again, this was not something that I... One, I thought this was released more recently for some reason. I know she's released other... Yeah. There's been a few other Midnight Snacks, I think, and Feed yes. Them are kind yes. of her most recent singles. Yeah. And again, they're all kind of food-themed, whatever. Sure. Um, I had never dug into this album before yeah. uh, right. doing this podcast. Yeah. Um not my not my fave and it's not Not because I don't I think that's more I think that's more my taste no pun intended as opposed to like I think (laughs) there's some songs I really like on this I think uh, Bless the Telephone I really Mm -hmm. like Breakfast Mm -hmm. and then some of the others I kind of felt they just all melted in to one another I mean Um, I'm not not a big TV on the radio person who uh, David Siddick or Siddick whatever his name is produced this album yeah no this is by far my least favorite Khalees album it's the one I'm the least familiar with I agree with your song choices Uh, I think Breakfast is a great almost like Neo Soul song Um, Mm. but yeah I, I mean I appreciate that Khalees can sort of like pick all of these different vibes and like just kind of give herself over to each one. And I'd be very curious to know like what a Khalees album in this, in 2022 would sound like. Like, I think that, uh, this was a noble experiment that just like, isn't my particular favorite. And uh, frankly, I'm like looking at this track listing right now and I'm like, wait, which one is this one again? Mm, I'm the same. I just, a lot of those middle ones, I'm like, I just, I'm sorry, Khalees. No, I mean, I mean, listen, we all have our off days, but I, you know, (laughs) I I really, I really do think breakfast is a great song and I, Mm. and I can think of it instantaneously just by looking at the song title. So I don't know. I'm with you. This is not, this, this one doesn't feel like particularly like vibrant in my mind. You've probably just answered this, but in your opinion, what album is Peak Lease and then Tasty. what record is Khalees at her flower? Okay, so you think Tasty is Peak Lease and yes. then Khalees at her, for the sake of this show, floppiest, like yeah. her worst. Oh, Wonderland is probably, wise. Wonderland is also up there with the, in the flopped category, but it's a better album. Mm. I, I mean, I think Tasty is so, is important, not just because it's like an incredibly enjoyable pop album, but I know I sort of mentioned this earlier, but her sort of eccentric genre hopping taste on tasty 
really set the template for Love Angel Music Baby in particular, which many, I mean, Pharrell went on to obviously work on songs on that record. There's there's kinship between those albums, and I've often felt strongly that like Gwen Stefani's solo career, like whether she knew it or not, like Tasty set the table for that in some ways. And there's records on there's a there's a kinship between those albums that I just want to like put out there. Um and it's also her most enjoyable record. I think it's her warmest album. I think it's mm. her it's an intimate feeling record. It's feels like summer sugar honey iced tea i mean such oh, a great song so there's like a, there, it's it's a summer album it's a sexy album it's a just a very smooth like butter enjoyable album to listen to and showcases her versatility the best to me and showcases her personality in the most appealing way that any of her records have and yeah i'd say my least favorite is food i would say that's that's the flop artistically for me and i'd say wanderland is probably like eat up there with it in terms of like commercial flop. Mm. Mm-hmm. she's an artist that's obviously mononymous um yes. and like her influence is still felt today like she's still like she'll still pop up as a regular feature you mentioned calvin harris's bounce yes disclosure more recently on watch your step ash yes. sampled her on a yes. song recently deal with it yes um but I would like to know if you were to craft a comeback for Khalees in 2022 or beyond. Not that, I'm going to be honest, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Having no. listened to more recent interviews with her, she seems no. like she's very happy, it. very content, yeah. middle fingers up to the music industry. Yeah, she's But let's say she wakes up tomorrow and she's like, Louis, I'm, go- I'm going to go into the studio. What should I do? What I, do you think should be her, her next move? Or what would you like to see from her, I should say? I would say like something groovier and lower key. And the person that comes to my mind is like Dev Hines for some reason seems like an interesting collaborator choice for her. Just someone, I think something a little funky and languid and like low key would really work for her. Like something almost like soothing again, almost like the word Neo soul comes to mind. Like just something that's like a little bit almost like earth mother, I think could be an interesting like path forward for her. Maybe something that paid homage to kind of like 70s R&B. I'm thinking about like the Brothers Johnson or something like that or Minnie Ripperton. I don't know, like something along those lines I think would be an interesting vibe for her to be in. If you listen to the uh, Mariah Carey song that Dev Hines produced, Giving Me Life from her most recent record, I don't know, things like in that vibe. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. Dev Hines is a great shout though. Because yes. I was trying to think, when you said that, I was like, hmm. Yes. Yes. I love that. It's, I feel like Will that'd be a happen? hand in glove. Yeah. I Will mean, it happen? Never Unlikely. She'd be feeding chickens. <laughs> never say never, but she seems she like she's... recorded in the barn. Yeah. Yeah. Surely the acoustics are good there. Surely. <laughs> um, Louis, it's been a pleasure to yes. talk to you about Khalees. You Before too. we go, we mentioned Pop Pantheon. Yes. Um, please tell the listeners a little bit more about it and where people can find you and the podcast. So Pop Pantheon is my podcast. It is what we call over analysis of all your favorite pop stars. And then we rank them in the official Pop Pantheon, which is a system of technic five, but more like seven tiers that I've created to sort of like sort out the world of pop stardom. So you've got like the icons of the genre at the top, like Madonna and Prince and Beyonce and David Bowie, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got tier two, which is like the mega stars, like one notch below that. And then it kind of goes from there all the way down to tier five, which is what we call like everyone else, but essentially the flops. (laughs) 
pertinent to our conversation today. Um, and they all have different criteria. And essentially, we, me and a different guest every episode, in thorough detail, dissect their entire career, every album era, videos, whatever we can get into. And then at the end of it, we debate like where they belong in the system of tears. So it's like both, I think, like, you know, interesting to listen to and also fun to listen to. It's like almost like a game on some level. And yeah, so every episode is devoted to an individual star. And so we get into their whole, their whole thing. And I definitely think people that are listening to this show will like it. We have a whole category that speaks to a lot of what we were talking about today called niche legends that Khalees would definitely fit into, I think on the show. And, uh, that, you know, are kind of like our beloved flops. So, um, that's the show. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to it on Spotify. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's there. If anyone wants uh, my list of personal favorite episodes, I would be happy to send them on to you for a starting point. Because <laughs> as wanna, I said, I'm you obsessed. You want to say one? What's your yeah. favorite? Oh, oh God. Well, I already mentioned Christina. I loved yeah. One Direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved Nelly Furtado. Mm. thought the Charlie episode. Actually, but just because I think she's like really fascinating. The Selena episode, Selena Gomez, yes. was very, very good. I like that one because too. Because I just... What a mental career. What a mental pop yeah. star. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just, yeah. I, oh, I, I just, I love it. I'm behind on the most recent few episodes, uh, but I just, I can't wait to pound the pavements and just have you in my ears oh my God. shooting the shit. It's so good. Thank so you. So I implore everyone to go check it out if they haven't. Yes, please. Um, DJ the 14th, thank you so much for joining me on Flop Culture. Thank you so, so much for having me. DJ Louis the 14th there from Pop Pantheon. Um, I will link everything that we talked about in the show notes and his podcast. He's on social media individually. Go follow him and go follow the podcast. It is, if you're anyway into pop music, and I even think pop culture at large, just go listen. It's so good. I did enough falling at the start. I'm going to stop now. But anyway, it was a pleasure to have him. And especially on the opening episode and taking that time. I appreciate it so much. And hopefully he will come back talking about maybe someone he mentioned in that chat. Who knows? Uh, For anyone screaming at me now, being like, you never addressed the Beyonce drama. We foolishly, foolishly uh, recorded that well in advance of that interaction. So some context on that for anyone who's like, what the hell are you talking about? Beyonce just recently released Renaissance. Renaissance, who am I? Very American. Excuse me, that's Louis' influence. Whatever, it's fine. They can be pronounced both ways. Beyonce just recently released Renaissance, new album, and there was a lot of revisions made to it. One note beyond the song Energy. The track initially contained an interpolation, interpolation of Milkshake, uh, and that basically means uh, portions of the song's melody were re-recorded instead of directly sampled. So there were, you can kind of still hear it in the beat, um, but it was mainly there was like a bed of like la la la's that Beyonce or potentially one of the other, a backing singer, another vocalist did in the background that was the same as the la la la's from Milkshake. Um, and at the time, Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo had been credited on the album for the interpolation. Khalees had not been. We know this is now because of essentially like the bad deal. Well, bad deal in inverted commas, you know, Khalees maintains that she was tricked, whatever, into signing this bad deal. Um, but legally it makes sense that they're credited and she's not. That's not a question of fairness. It's not fair, obviously, because she's known for it. It's her song. Um, but at the time when it came out, obviously, she had, 
you know, she was very vocal in the fact that she was very angry at all three of them, not just Beyonce. She'd said, my mind is blown too because the level of disrespect and utter ignorance of all three parties involved is astounding. I heard about this the same way everyone else did. Nothing is ever as it seems. Some of the people in this business have no soul or integrity and they have everyone fooled. Um, and she's like, had to go on and deny that she was jealous of Beyonce because, you know, the beehive, like, very intense. Stan Army, as most of them are, very protective of Beyonce. I get it. That, I don't think that was ever where Cleese was coming from. But anyway, she went on again to say, the reality is that my real beef is not only with Beyonce because at the end of the day, she sampled a record. She's copied me before. She's done this before. So have many other artists. It's fine. I don't care about that. The issue is that not only are we female artists, okay, black female artists in industry, there's not that many of us. We've met each other. We know each other. We have mutual friends. It's not that hard. She can make contact, right? So that was kind of her frustration as well was that Beyonce didn't even reach out. I'm not sure if she's reached out since removing the interpolation from the song. At the end of the day, the beef, regrettably, look, would a bit of would it have been sound of her to reach out? Absolutely. But the beef goes back to the two lads. And I think she needs to maybe follow that up if she wants to, but I can understand why she doesn't. She's so disillusioned with the industry. She's been fighting this fight for a long time when she kind of initially said these things over the last year, like 2020, 2021, nothing kind of came of it and nothing still has. And even with this, I think it probably may be, you know, solidified her decision not to pursue this legally or in any other way, because it's just, you know, you had the Beyonce fans going after her. You had other people who were kind of looking at the sidelines, but like rolling their eyes, being like, what is she whinging about? You can't even hear it, whatever. But I suppose I do get the frustration, but I also get the acceptance to be like, I'm done, I'm done fighting this. I want to, I want to cook my food. I want to take care of my children. I want to have do my sell my beauty business, you know? So I don't know. I love her. The one thing I will say is this episode in this chat has like my Spotify wrapped is ruined next year because of one song in particular, Brave. Brave is gonna be my number one. I already know. Incredible song, incredible artist, one definitely worth visiting if you never did in detail like me um, ashamedly or uh, revisiting if you haven't just haven't in a long time so yeah love that finally I think I've kept you long enough let's get into who is top of the flops this week you're a flop top of the flops this week for me I mean it has to be Lisa Rinna really doesn't it uh, some Housewives fans Bravo fans they're convinced uh, that she's been dropping a lot of hints that she has been fired maybe left the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills that is kind of something I welcome if I'm going to be totally honest but I'll get into that a bit later on this has basically come off the back of you know there's been a lot of argy-bargy the last few while with other castmates specifically Diana and Garcelle and the fallout of that, and Botgate. So basically, they were kind of feuding online, Garcelle and Diana. Garcelle Bovey and Diana Jenkins, in case you're like, who the hell are you talking about? I just assume everyone watches Real Housewives of Beverly Hills here. Um, and then Lisa Rinna and Erica Jane got involved. Diana was basically accusing Garcelle of taking the piss out of her pregnancy loss. Garcelle denies this, said, you know, it was just about the fact that you couldn't get my name right. Again, you're not going to get this in the context of the episode, but or unless you watch the episode, but just for context. Um, and basically then since, uh, you know, Diana was kind of like game on in the sense of the feud. And then we had Garcelle's son being targeted by loads of like near identical kind of public IG accounts that all looked very similar 
um, the consensus is that these were all bots and they were bought to uh, harass Garcelle's son, direct racist attacks at him, death threats, really, truly awful, 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 awful things. Um, Bravo was forced to speak out. Well, not forced, they should have, after a lot of pressure from the fan base. The rest of the castmates came out and said, look, this isn't acceptable. They all kind of reshared the blanket statement. But like, to be honest, Rina has kind of just been on one since then. I think at one point she said that she reckons, you know, like, I think at one point she accused a producer of orchestrating the attack, which is just absolutely insane. And I think at another point she uh, accused former castmate, has not been on in years, again, for context, Lisa Vanderpump, of orchestrating the attacks to to distract from upcoming scenes in which Cathy Hilton is seemingly, you know, seemingly gets into trouble when they go to Aspen. Something happens in Aspen, we still don't know yet. Um, what actually went on in the context there. Um, but she just, I think her time has come. And I feel like maybe this is going to be an unpopular opinion. I kind of don't care. I really do think her time has come. I think she did bring a lot to the franchise. I think she's had some cracking funny moments. Um, she brought drama where it was needed. But I think she's been riding on that legacy, the legacy of Amsterdam, other things like that. And I think... That's all well and good, but when that well runs dry, what then? And I just feel like there's been a lot of weird behaviour like this. I just, I think it's time. I'd be open to her coming back, but there's just no, there's no acceptance of what she's doing. There's no acknowledgement of behaviour. It's just very, it's kind of getting borderline hard to watch for me personally. So regrettably... Lisa Rinna has topped the flops for me. Who would you like to see replace her? I know there's been talk this week of Kimora Lee Simmons. Well, not necessarily replacing Lisa Rinna. Also, sorry, the rumours are that Page Six had reports that she's a part of the show still for her. Like, there's no word on her actually leaving. I think it's time. I think if she hasn't left slash been fired, I think it's time for her. I would love Kimora Lee Simmons to join. I think she was dropping hints on her Instagram recently. That would be very exciting. Ashley Simpson, I think I've talked about before. I think I've spotted her in photos with Kyle or something. I would enjoy that quite a lot. But yeah, time's up, you know? I'm just, give me something else. Give me, there's only so many Instagrams I can watch of you writhing around. That's all I'll say. And that's not, you know, I'm just, we all have our limits. Girls, gays and this. Um, anyway, I think that's all we have time for Flat Culture this week. I have, as I said, sweated through my entire shirt, so that's great, isn't it? Um, thank you so much for listening. We are on Instagram and TikTok under flapculture underscore pod, and you can get in touch at helloflapculture at gmail.com. If you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and your name or a nickname, I will recommend a bop or flap to you. Um, if you leave a five-star review on Spotify, you will have eternal smugness, which is even better, really. Um, hugely appreciate it and it helps get the podcast out there and also tell your friends um, as I said if you weren't into this episode totally fine you've no idea the variety of the stuff we're talking about this season um, it's incredible and it's so much fun and I have such great guests and I'm really 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 excited I will see you all next week this podcast has been edited by Adam Shanahan Adam Shanahan